That's one of the first teachings of psychedelics. It's like the world is not an either or, it's a both and. So our challenge, I think, is going to be to walk that talk. How do we hold a both and model rather than an either or? Welcome to the Psychiatry Tomorrow podcast. I'm Dr. Carly McMillan, and in each episode, we interview thought leaders in the deep end of psychiatry's next frontier. Dive into the latest research, innovative treatments, technology, and policy developments shaping the future of psychiatry. Join us on this journey to discover what's next in mental health care so you can stay ahead of the curve. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Allison McGinnis. Today, we have a fascinating and thought-provoking episode for you, where we dive into the world of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and its implications for the future of mental health care. Yes, yeah, so we're incredibly excited to have Andrew Penn, a professor in the Community Health Systems at UCSF School of Nursing, as our special guest today. Andrew's a trained practitioner in psychedelic-assisted therapy and a leading expert in the I really enjoyed my conversation with Andrew. I knew him uh, previously um, in a different work setting, and I was impressed by his passion for increasing access to care. He's been such a champion of empowering nurses to help with the provision of psychedelic medicine, for example, as they are already experts in creating a safe psychological setting for patients. We explore the importance of set and setting in the context of psychedelic experiences, focusing on establishing empathy and creating trust. Yes, and I really resonated with this concept of glacial change through a psycholytic approach. Um, as Andrew discusses the significance of gradual incremental transformations rather than seeking one-off monumental break breakthroughs. Literally, the intervention itself is the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much ongoing work that contributes to these courses of treatment. He also discusses how these medicines can be powerful placebo enhancers and the biological signatures of hope. Yeah, Andrew agrees with another of our guests on the show, uh, Dr. Boris Heifetz, in that they both think the placebo effect has been much maligned, when rather it is a very useful tool that we can use to enhance patient well-being and maybe even keep doses of medicines lower than they otherwise would be. Mm -hmm. And I was also intrigued by Andrew's insights on depression as a disease of disconnection and the potential of psychedelics to foster a sense of fundamental connectedness and awe through group therapy. I personally love group therapy, I love running groups um, especially, and I really feel that it's underutilized across the board in the mental health field. Yes, I echo that. I, I ran a group oral ketamine therapy clinic at Kaiser Permanente and HMO, and patients felt so connected. They would open up like flowers once the uh, ketamine took effect um, in the group setting. It was an antidote to their isolation and despair. So we have a lot to cover, and we're thrilled to bring you this rich and engaging conversation. All right, so let's dive into our interview with Andrew Penn and explore the intriguing world of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. I had the great good fortune to meet our guest today when I was uh, developing a ketamine infusion therapy program at Kaiser Permanente in 2015, and I found a kindred spirit in, in Andrew Penn. Um, Andrew is a psychiatric nurse practitioner and has since become an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also on the steering committee for Psych Congress and has been a tireless champion of nurses and mental health. During the course of his career, Andrew has become well-known for his work on the therapeutic use of psychedelics in mental health care and the integration of these approaches into mainstream psychiatry. Today, we're going to focus on a particular aspect of psychedelic medicine, which is the role of mindset and setting. 
But let's first get to know Andrew in his own words. So, <laughs> Andrew, can you tell us about your career journey and how you became interested in psychedelic medicine? Yeah, thanks, Allison. It's uh, nice to see you here. I'm trying to remember when that was that you were starting that program back at, at when we were both at Kaiser. Was it, uh, 2015. 2015. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was like the early days of ketamine and psychedelics, all of eight years ago now, which is amazing to, to think about how much has happened in such a short period of time. How did I get interested in psychedelics? Um, Well, I would say I blame Aldous Huxley because I was, Ah. you know, I I came of age in the 80s, which was probably the the lowest point with regards to the the, the sort of narrative around, around substances that change consciousness. You know, it was sort of the height of Reagan's drug war. Um, the sixties were something that happened a long time ago, you know, that our parents were somehow involved with maybe. And I read somewhere that the band, the doors had gotten their name from a book that Aldous Huxley had written about psychedelics. And I'd read Aldous Huxley in high school, um, brave new world. And, uh, so I, I got the doors of perception out of the public library and read it. And I thought, this is really weird and interesting. Um, and it kind of squared with you know, the stories that we'd been told about the 60s, which were a little before my time. Um, you know, and it, but but a very different way of, of thinking about it. And, you know, and I kind of put it aside and didn't really think about it that much um, until, you know, really probably a dozen years or so ago. And then I remember asking my pharmacology professor when I was... Uh, nurse practitioner student at UCSF in the mid two thousand early 2000s I said you know how does MDMA work and she said I don't know you should go look it up <laughs> so so I did and and that sort of got me I think at that point maybe I'd read about the studies that MAPS was doing with uh with MDMA and I started following that and I remember trying to go to the first conference in 2010 but I think it sold out and so I went to the 2013 conference and, you know, started realizing this was actually an, an area of of serious inquiry. And I'd been involved with Psych Congress for a couple of years at that point, uh, which is a big continuing education conference that happens every year. And I did a talk, I think in 2012, about bath salts. <laughs> <laughs> which was sort of the more ah, yes. the moral panic of that time, you know, and, and it turns out, well, bath salts are substitute cathinones, which are not that dissimilar from MDMA. In fact, number of the, a number of the, the, what were pejoratively called bath salts um, are actually drugs like methylone that are under investigation for their potential use as uh, potential therapies now. And so in that, in that talk, I had to sort of embed my interest in psychedelics in this talk that was ostensibly kind of a drug abuse talk. And um, as time went on, it, I, I started talking less about drug abuse and more about these as therapeutic agents. And so that's sort of what's got me here. And then in the in the time in between those two points, I, I went through the California Institute for Integral Studies Psychedelic uh, Certificate in Psychedelic Therapies and Research, CPTR, back in 2017. It was their second class. And some colleagues from that class and I, who are also nurses, we started an organization called the Organization of Psychedelic and Entheogenic Nurses, or Open Nurses, to advocate for the role of nursing in the space. And in the last few years, it just sort of feels like it's taken off like wildfire. You know, the just the interest, the public interest in psychedelic 
therapies and ketamine and such and and the professional interest is all just intersecting in a way that is it's going so fast that it's a challenge to keep up with it all honestly you know it used to be that you could read all the papers and kind of know all the studies that were happening and now I'm I'm finding papers that I you know didn't even know existed so it's an interesting time yeah <laughs> yeah it is I mean just earlier this morning when we were chatting um I was thinking about the uh, Robin Har- Carhart Harris paper, um, canalization and the different forms of, you know, warm and uh, temperature, I think, entropic pla- neuroplasticity. So even just the concept of neuroplasticity is, you know, breaking apart um, and getting more complicated. Um, you know, I was interested when you said you read uh, Aldous Huxley um, was, you know, that I, that's a commonality with a lot of the folks that I've been talking to about, you know, how they got they got started. Um, and what about uh, Terrence McKenna? Did you touch on the, Terrence's work? I really didn't. Um, yeah, uh-huh. I, I mean, I, I know some of his work. I, I sort of wish the dose, the, the term heroic dose would go away. Um, I know that's sort of uh, one, one, <laughs> the just, hero's yeah, dose. Yeah, the heroic dose. I mean, it, it, it seems to engender a lot of hubris. Um, you know, when people throw that term around and it just, uh, I, I think there'll be a lot of interest. I think I'm very interested in finding out how do we, how do we match these therapies to different kinds of people and different kinds of conditions and, and to, to affect different kinds of outcomes. And I, I think just as, you know, there are some people that are going to need 10 milligrams of Prozac to get better. There's other people that are going to need 80 and, it's the clinician's challenge is trying to figure out who needs what and what's safest and what's effective and what's tolerable. And I think the same will be true for psychedelics is that there will be some psychedelics that are some psychedelic medicines and doses that are better matched to some people than others. And, you know, these are early days. So really we're, we're only just starting to figure this out and there's a long way to go. Yeah, I, I I like it that uh, I like that comment. Um, you know, there's certain kind of bravura of the early days of psychedelic dosage, and people did a lot, a lot, a lot to face you know the darkest demons. And um, I think we're coming to understand that 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 isn't you know necessary, nor is it even um, a particularly good mindset with which to approach uh, these drugs. Yeah, it's. it's- I mean, I'll just say to that, you know, it's one of the places that has kind of gotten lost in all this discourse is is psycholytic dosing. I mean, I think that's actually more common in the ketamine space where people are working with these low doses, lower doses, you know, not micro doses, but, uh, but on the lower end doses of things like sublingual ketamine, um, which allow for the person to continue to engage in psychotherapy during the effects of the drug and don't blow people out of the water. And they're a little more approachable. And I, I also feel like in addition to the sort of heroic dose being a bit hubristic, the idea that breakthrough is always required in order to get better I think a lot of therapy is really not about cataclysmic change. It's about glacial change. And it's about glacial small changes that occur over time that are sustained by enduring actions. You know, so if you make changes and you you learn to tolerate affective states that were previously intolerable, and then you go out and you try them out with other people and you, you that's part of your integration, you know, that that really is the kind of changes that I think tend to endure more than somebody having a big epiphany and then really not knowing what to do with it. Um, and I think uh-huh. we've sort of overprivileged the big breakthrough and we've we've really not given enough attention or value to 
these smaller changes that can occur from lower doses that are more psycholytic than psychedelic. And I think that's an area that we could use some more study as well. Yeah, excellent point. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, so this kind of kind of sets us up for it. So the dose really matters for sure um, with psychedelic therapy. And then the, this idea of the mind, the mindset, and as part of our the focus of our discussion today, maybe you could uh, define for our listeners, you know, the mindset as it applies to psychedelic therapy. Yeah, well, you know, this is this kind of starts to get to the the question of, you know, people in the early days of me talking about this would say silly things like, well, of course they were less depressed. You got them high. You know, to which I would say, well, you know, why did the antidepressant effects of, say, ketamine last, you know, for two weeks? Because, you know, we both know that ketamine doesn't doesn't endure in the body for that long. But really, I think to your question, it really speaks to the importance of the care that is delivered and the environment in which that care is is provided. And that the therapist is part of that environment. You know, there is a space that is co-created between the patient and the clinician that is really important around, that will have an important determination on outcome. You know, we get we get very fixated on the drugs themselves and the effects that they purportedly have, but but the the context in which this is done is really important. And first and foremost, people have to feel safe in order for this to go well. And, you know, as a nurse, one of my first orders of business is making sure that the environment is safe and that the patient feels safe and cared for because they're, they may be in a state where they're not able to do that for themselves because they're going to be in a non-ordinary state of consciousness if the dose is high enough and they're going to not necessarily have full agency over their body, for example. And so they, they need somebody there in order for that to go well they need somebody there who they feel like they can trust to be not only physically vulnerable with but emotionally vulnerable as well and know that that whatever comes up is going to be held with with a kind of a loving kindness and equipoise and, and care um and that's what allows people to settle into the experience and to feel that kind of safety that i think that these medications can engender you know i mean i remember a patient that i sent of mine back in my kaiser days who actually went to the phase 2 mdma uh study of uh for ptsd and she had had a single experience with mdma earlier in her life um when she was younger and first kind of uncovering her trauma not in a therapeutic setting but just recreationally so i asked her i said you know what was that like for you and she said you know that was the first time i ever felt safe in my life um, and I think, you know, that's a really powerful kind of testimony about the effects of that particular medication. But if you're in an environment that doesn't feel safe and you're with people that you don't feel like you can trust, that's a setup for it not to go well. So I think the quality of care and the quality of presence that clinicians bring to this is of utmost importance. Yeah. So, so yes, I guess here we could sort of compare and contrast with maybe doing a psychedelic at Burning Man and doing a psychedelic with the intent to heal. Um, one situation that set and setting is not controlled, and in the other, there's you know very a lot of careful thought that goes into it, and yet it's the same substance. 
Right, right. And that's and that's the puzzling part, right? Is that same substance, different settings, different outcomes. Yeah. And let's let's expand a little bit more on this idea of creating safety. And so there's the relationship with the clinician and you were giving the example of say nursing care. Um, so there's that, there's that relationship that's a component. And what about, um, what about that relationship? Like what creates, what, what kind of attributes does the clinician need to think about or have or manifest to create that a good, you know, clinical relationship? Yeah. I mean, foundationally it's based on trust, right? Because if you don't have trust, you don't have anything. And, and so that trust has to be earned. Um, we don't in, we don't just get to be trusted because we have credentials or you know we're working for a fancy hospital or whatever. I mean those those help to contribute to that that experience of trust. And we've had subjects in our studies who've said things like, you know, well, you know, I feel safe with you guys because I know UCSF is world class and I trust this hospital and you know so we benefit from that kind of halo effect. But ultimately. It's going to be about me as a clinician, and so can I can I be trustworthy? And and then once I'm trusted, can I be invited into that person's inner world? Because really, you know, I, I've I've talked about this before that it's kind of like we're remodeling the interiority of their house. You know, the outside of the house is going to stay the same, but the inside is going to be remodeled. And I'm like the contractor and designer, and they are the client. And I'm I'm not coming in, you know, so the first thing I need to do is pay attention to how they live in their house now and what they want it to look like when it's done, how they're going to live in it when they're done. And and that's part of what we do in preparation is, is really getting to know the interiority of that person and of that 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 house that they live in inside their own their own being and then but i have to be invited into that space i don't just march in and say well i'm going to tear out a wall here you know um i i want to know and also in preparation i also want to know what i might find behind the walls you know so that's partially why we're having this period of non-drug treatment where we're getting to know each other. I mean, the patient is getting to know me. I'm getting to know them. And we're learning about each other. We're both learning and teaching. They're teaching me about them. I'm teaching them about what they might expect and how they can best use this experience. And we're both we're both learning from each other. And in that learning process, we're creating a, a solid container. And and I can start to see the world through their eyes, and maybe they can potentially start to see the world in a different way, a different possible way. Um, and so that, and then, you know, when we get into the difficult stuff, we deepen that trust by being, having impeccable integrity, you know, always acting with integrity. Um, we, we get there by not flinching when difficult things come up. You know, that we can be present for whatever comes up and we can hold that with a kind of loving kindness that's safe um, and supportive and that deepens the trust. And so, you know, this is especially important when maybe there's going to be a repetition of this cycle. You know, we're going to do some non-drug integration afterwards and then maybe like in the case of ketamine, we're going to do this again in a month. So, you know, uh -huh. each time we go through this cycle we have the opportunity to deepen that relationship and that trust. And that's going to allow that patient to go into the more difficult stuff, the more scary stuff that, you know, 
one of the things that's been talked about with psychedelics as opposed to conventional, say, antidepressants. And, you know, there's a there's sort of a sport in the psychedelic space of making straw man arguments about conventional psychiatry and antidepressants. And I don't really have a lot of patience for it because, you know, there's a lot of people that benefit from those medications too. And we're going to continue to need those even right. when we use psychedelics. So we don't need to make straw man arguments about antidepressants. But, you know, one of the downsides to antidepressants is that they they do tend to dampen depressive symptoms. They also tend to dampen other emotional experiences too. And so, you know, people will say, well, I don't feel depressed, but I don't feel much of anything. And so in a way, they kind of contribute to experiential avoidance, which is that like, I don't want to look at these difficult things. So this kind of turns down the volume on them. And sometimes, you know, that is a real blessing. And I don't want to, I don't want to disparage that. The downside is that you also don't feel the other good. They don't feel the good things as well. Like people talk about like, you know, I don't feel joy either. I don't, I used to cry in movies. I don't cry in movies, sad movies anymore. Um, Whereas psychedelics, including ketamine, I think to some extent, tend to do the opposite. They say like, hey, you're not getting away from looking at this difficult stuff. You know, and the further you try and get away from it, like the more it's going to kind of come after you. And, you know, maybe that's what you call a, difficult experience or a bad trip. Um, But they do have this proclivity for saying like, we're going to look at that difficult stuff today. And you have to prepare people for that, you know, and you have to say like, hey, you know, that difficult stuff may come up and I'm here for you. And we've put all this time in, in the days leading up to this to make sure you feel safe so that you can, you can get into that stuff if you want to go there. You know, but ultimately, it's always the patient that chooses how deep they want to go. The therapist should never be trying to push through people's resistance. Like that's how you, that's how you do harm. So you know, sometimes people are resisting for really good reasons, and we need to respect that. And we shouldn't be trying to knock those walls down in the middle of a session. That's inappropriate. And I think that's where harm gets done. So it's about it's about knowing how far you can go and when when you've gone too far, how to pull back from that. Uh, it's a, That's why it's a really subtle art. Yeah, it's a really graceful dance. Um, how, so, so how can we think about um, the best way, because this is so complex already, um, how do, how do you, we prepare patients specifically for this? What, what do you do? So in our studies. For it's like, yeah, so, you know, I'm working on studies of psilocybin for in various aspects of depression, you know, like people with depression that have Parkinson's disease as well, or people that have bipolar two disorder, which often comes with a lot of depression. And so, you know, we've, we've looked at this quite a bit in our, in our studies and, you know, a lot of what we're doing to prepare is really relational. You know, we're, we're making sure they know us and they feel comfortable with us and that we've, we've really tried to answer all of their questions and that we've anticipated where there might be some challenges that come up. Um, And of course we make the physical environment really comfortable too. You know, we have a little, you know, kind of living room and like environment that is very private and quiet. And, you know, you're not going to hear people banging around in the next room and nobody's going to come barging in. And, you know, we really want that space to feel very safe. And also not clinical, you know, we don't, we don't have um, medical equipment lying around and stuff like that. It doesn't look like a hospital room. Something that I, um, that I kind of struggled with was how, you know, in terms of establishing the mindset to, to, 
to receiving the treatment, um, which is to, you want to encourage someone to be hopeful, but also you have to acknowledge that maybe the treatment won't work. I mean, it's a complicated, really complicated message. Yeah. And we're up against a lot of, a lot of stuff in the media and in the culture at large right now. Um, like it's, it's, you know, very fashionable to be disparaging of antidepressants. And so I think, you know, people, if they're starting antidepressants, often have very low expectations of them. Whereas the opposite is true for ketamine and psychedelics. Like these are, you know, because of, you know, Michael Pollan's work and, you know, stuff on the major media outlets, you know, there is this sort of miracle cure uh, narrative that's out there. And, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's it's certainly created some challenges. You know, we call it the pollen effect uh, sometimes because, you know, when we ask our subjects, like, where'd you hear about this? Almost invariably, they say, well, I read Michael Pollan's book or I saw the Netflix special or something. And I appreciate that. And I think Michael's a great storyteller. It's it's just the challenge that we're facing right now is is creating some some mo- some more moderate expectations, and and part of those expectations, as I'm starting to develop this thought, is is that you know in psychiatry we we had this I I always say in psychiatry we have antibiotic envy. Like, you know, like this Freudian antibiotic envy. We we want our meds to work as well as, say, you know, azithromycin does for a, an infection. And and I get that because, you know, our, our medications are kind of modestly effective a lot of the time. I mean, there are some that are really quite impressive, you know, and how well they work when they work. But we don't have that kind of same speed of of effect and the duration of effect that we see with some other diseases, disease states. Um and so I think we've kind of engaged in this fantasy in biological psychiatry that we can just sort of knock a disease out like you might knock out an infection. You know, we even call some of our drugs lytic, you know, which if you're not, you know, if your background isn't in biology, you know, and a lysis, lysing a cell is to sort of poke a hole in it and let the, the guts leak out and it kills the bacteria. You know, that's how you kill a bacteria is you lyse it. Um, and you know, as if we could do that with like anxiolytic medications. Um, and the reality is, I think is different. I think the reality, and I think this is what's happening with psychedelics is that people are changing the relationship they have to their illness. And so, you know, when mm-hmm. I think about that, when I think about that patient of mine who went through the MDMA study, you know, she had really bad PTSD from childhood abuse. And at the end of it, she still had PTSD, but this is the part that's weird. It was different. It was, it had a, her relationship to her illness and her relationship to her trauma had fundamentally changed. And it became like, this is something that happened to me versus like, this is what controls my life. And, you know, did it eliminate her memories of her trauma? No, of course not. Um, but she had a different mm-hmm. relationship with them, you know, and I think that's the part. So, you know, how does that apply to depression? Like, you know, does somebody change their relationship to depression where rather than trying to cut this thing out of them, you know, I mean, we we learned that from Jung, you know, that you don't become whole by cutting some part of yourself off. You know, you integrate all these parts of yourself into the whole. And so 
do do we change the relationship somebody has with their depression with a psychedelic or with something like ketamine? I don't know. You know, I think this sort of phenomenology is something that is really worth trying to understand better because what I see in in these studies is not that people come in and they're like, oh my God, it's gone. You know, they'll say, it's still there, but I just have a different relationship with it than I used to. Yes. And that's, and I think that's worth trying to understand better because if we can explain that to patients that it it may be about changing the relationship and not about just cutting this depression out of you like it's a kind of tumor you know then maybe that's a more realistic expectation and maybe helps guide the work in a different way enjoying the psychiatry tomorrow podcast and hungry for even more insights into the future of mental health care then you won't want to miss out on the Psychiatry Tomorrow newsletter from OzMind. Join hundreds of forward-thinking psychiatrists and mental health professionals staying ahead of the curve with the latest research, technology, and practice strategies delivered straight to your inbox. It's free, it's easy, and it's the best way to keep your finger on the pulse of mental health care. Just head to ozmind.org tomorrow and we'll see you inside. Yeah, I, I remember that so vividly from, you know, all the ketamine patients that I've talked to and they would repeatedly say that they just had a new perspective and mm-hmm. that everything was the same. All the difficulties in their life came, but that somehow or other, it, it you know, they they felt that they could, they had some emotional resilience, I would say, probably. I felt like resilience yeah. is really an important role there. And a feeling of connection. I mean, you know, one of the things that Roz Watts has, has done such a nice job about is really talking about, you know, for people that don't know, Roz is a psychologist in the UK who's done some really beautiful work around psychedelic integration and really talks about how depression is a phenomenon of disconnection. You know, you feel disconnected from well, other have- people, you feel disconnected from pleasure, you feel disconnected from yourself. Um, and that psychedelic experiences and maybe this is through the phenomenon of awe where we realize like this little storyteller that tells really tells us we tell ourselves really terrible stories about ourselves and about the world we live in you know is just one perspective and that there are other perspectives and that you know this is easily misinterpreted that you know people with depression don't want to have this internal narrative that they are um, that they're unhappy and that everyone hates them and that they'll never feel better. I mean, that, that they're not, it, it's, you know, I've heard it called, I've heard depression called pathological introspection. You know, you, you don't really want to be uh-huh. thinking about yourself all the time, but you can't stop yourself from having all these negative thoughts. And maybe there's something about that experience of awe that is often part of a psychedelic experience where you realize like, Oh my gosh, I'm just one story in a sea of billions of stories. What a relief. You know, and and there's so yeah. much wonderful stuff out here to connect with, like, you know, the beauty of this tree or, you know, my my partner's smile or, you know, any one of the numbers, you know, cuz it's not I don't think it's about seeing I mean, some people see God. That's great. Um, other people just see what's always been right in front of them the whole time and they have, and suddenly it's like, you know, it's like the, uh, William Blake said, you know, the, the doors of perception were cleaned and we could see the world as it is infinite, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it's not, it's not limited by the constraints of our own mind, which is so often our worst enemy. 
especially when we have depression. Yeah, I really, yeah, I can really relate to that. I've had the, you know, the experience of the fundamental connectedness of all things. Yeah. Which um, from when I was living in a monastery and, Mm. you know, so there, there are ways to get this that are not unique to psychedelics, but they speak to a, you know, a a wonderful healing state. Um, uh, Okay. So uh, let's think about, um, again, if we could maybe address um, thinking about mindset and why it's so uh, important in psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, Because it's a mindset's important to everything in life, right? I mean, uh, sports, psychology, and and other things. Um, So why is it so critical in the case of the psychedelic therapy? Well, you know, there's this interesting idea in psychedelics. Um, I think it was Ido Harkinson who who talked about this, said that, um, you know, psychedelics are placebo enhancers. And when I first heard that, I kind of scratched my head and said, wow. what do you mean by that? And, you know, the word placebo has a has a really bad rap, right? Because we think of placebo means like, oh, you got fooled, right? And the reality is, is that the placebo effect is present in every clinical treatment. We may not be giving a placebo, but there's always an element of placebo in every treatment, even if it's an active treatment. And I think that the emphasis on mindset and set and setting is a, is an element of that, and so let's if if people haven't totally shut down after hearing the word placebo, I mean let's check this out. So, <laughs> you know, what are the elements of the placebo effect? I mean, the, the 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 they I mean, there's wild things about the placebo effect. You know, you can you can reverse placebo anesthesia with naloxone, which is the opiate reversal drug, right? So, not even giving an opiate, but just people believing that they've gotten benefit from a, you know, they don't know it's a placebo, but they're reporting analgesic effects from a placebo. If you give them naloxone without them knowing it, they'll tell you that pain responses, that pain uh, relief has worn off, has gone away. So there's this biological underpinning to placebo effects, but there's also these sort of human aspects of like, there's something really empowering about deciding I'm going to do something to make my life better. You know, so... When somebody walks into my office and says, I'd really like to get help with my depression, we might think of that as day one, but they've been thinking about getting help for maybe weeks or months or even years and finally deciding, okay, this is it. I'm going to do something about it. And they didn't cancel the appointment and they did show up and they came in. And so that action precedes improvement and and just the very act of taking that first step um, will have benefits. And I think the same is true for psychedelic therapies. And I think this is a big part of what microdosing is probably about. It's about people taking agency over their own well-being and whether or not how much the drug has an effect. It's a difficult thing to parse out because in clinical trials, nobody's surprised that blinding is rather difficult in these studies. So people tend to know if they got active drug. And so doing the typical ways that we parse out the difference between an active, the effects of an active drug versus a placebo are kind of confounded by the fact that people tend to know that they got a placebo in a clinical trial with using a psychedelic. But I don't think that really matters. I think any, you know, so, so setting out to get help for yourself, um, having a clinician respectfully listen to you and understand your story and tell you there are things that we can do. There is, there's, we can help you with this. And then 
um, you know, and all the symbols of of treatment. You know, all the those. Why do why do people wear white coats in hospitals? You know, it's a signal that you're in a place that can help you. You know, like why do we put our why do we put our our diplomas up in our offices? It it engenders confidence. You know, so it it builds into this ritual of of care, which all of these things go into the mindset, and then you have this you know that you have these compounds ketamine psilocybin mdma whatever that that engender these very powerful experiences and so those can be amplified by those attempts to to take care of the the setting and and they tend to as stan groff said they're non-specific amplifiers so you know whatever you kind of go into that session thinking about you're probably going to think more about it you know, your thoughts may take a total left turn and you end up thinking about something else, which is another reason why I think it's valuable to tell patients and participants in these these treatments to hold those intentions loosely, you know, lovingly and, loose, and loosely, um, because something else may need to come up. And we entrust that there's a kind of wisdom to that process that, you know, nobody can really fully explain because it's sort of beyond our way of knowing, you know, sort of rationally, but say, you know, whatever comes up is probably what needs to come up. Um, And even if it's scary and difficult, that's okay. We're going to work through it. And that's part of why that setting the stage is so important because if something difficult comes up, we really want to have that foundation of trust and care that's going to allow that person to know that they're going to be okay. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, people have often spoken about this idea that if you can make meaning out of the difficult experience, it can still be really healing. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah, and this whole not wanting to use the term bad trip. Well, we all know what a bad trip is. <laughs> but um, so let's let's think for a second about uh, you know sort of the patient oriented aspect of things. Um, so for individuals who might be considering this, you know, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, what do you what do you think are some important factors they should consider before embarking on the journey and maybe in choosing a care provider? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think on uh, on some level you've got to feel safe. You know, you've got to be able to uh-huh. to relax into the experience and you know, for a lot of people this is much more of a it's a somatic experience of trust. You know, their gut will tell them this feels good. This feels safe. Um, you know, it, it's always going to be a bit of a leap. So, you know, you're probably never going to feel a hundred percent at ease and that's okay. You know, but you have to feel willing to, 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 to take that leap with this person that's treating you. I think that's, that's really going to be important. Um, you know, just so that you're, and that's and that's understandably very difficult for a lot of patients, you know, especially if they've had trauma, you know, if they've had issues around trust. Um, that's a big ask, and that means that we have to be very trauma informed in our care and be transparent about that. You know, I think part of what we do in therapy is we make the un- we make the unspoken spoken. You know, we have to. I think as clinicians, we have to engender a kind of courage that allows for patients to have difficult conversations with us. And we model how do we how do we do that as clinicians? How do we be courageous so that that patients feel safe with us? And because if they don't feel safe, 
they're going to struggle to really enter that experience fully. They're always going to kind of keep one foot outside the door in case they need to get out of there. And, and so, you know, this, this might require kind of easing, easing into the experience. You know, maybe you don't do a high dose of ketamine for your first journey. You know, you, you have a little, you have a little handshake with the medicine, you know, you're not, you don't go in for a full hug here, you know, just have a little taste of it and like see what, what's that's you know what what's the signature of this medicine what does it feel like in my body what does it feel like in my emotionally you know and then be patient you know this this there's a, so much impatience in the field right now and we all want to you know we all want to do this for everyone right wow and I, I i just feel like there's there's a lot of things we still don't know about this work and you know it's always going to be an evolving body of knowledge we won't know everything before we kind of let this out into the public but i i think that kind of impatience doesn't serve us and i don't think that's and i don't think the impatience is really you know impatience is not one of the teachings of most of these medicines you know if anything they engender a kind of like timeless spaciousness where you know it's like that was an hour that felt like a month you know that i was in that space and maybe it's trying to tell us something of like you know take your time don't rush look around you know uh I don't know, um, but I, I I do sometimes feel like the haste that we're getting into in this space may ultimately inadvertently cause some harm. I don't want to avoid that. Yeah, I think um, overpromise is something I worry about uh, as well because yeah. I know that I you know I think it's really important. Like for me, I would feel good about a provider who says, you know, you, you don't want to convey the convey the impression that this is the only treatment that's going to work. Like this is the big bang. You have to be prepared that there are alternatives and that there's, you know, nothing wrong with a patient if they don't, if the medicine doesn't serve them. Um, And I think that's a bit of a problem um, currently as well. Yeah, expectation expectation management. Yeah. Expectation management, 100%. I wanted to, to bring up the subject of healthcare inequities. So the magnifiers. So um, we've been talking about magnifiers and I feel like uh, healthcare inequities that get magnified with psychedelics as well. Um, you know, you have ketamine is out of pocket largely yeah. and you need to have it near you and it's not paid for, you know, by insurance largely. And um, the there was an example of a, of, a, of a provider of psilocybin in Oregon. So there's, you know, there's this kind of tension between like corporate psilocybin and like sort of the hand grown psilocybin in Oregon. But, you know, this provider went to all this trouble, you know, to set up a clinic and they grew their own mushrooms and the mushrooms are inexpensive, true, but the treatment is $1,000 and you need at least two. And, you know, so there you go. I mean, you know, I mean, we were talking about this a bit earlier, but um, it's it's unfortunate that there's this tension between the two camps. Yeah, you know, I think we're going to see more of that. I mean, we certainly saw it in the ketamine space where, you know, the drug itself is is a few bucks, but the the you know each infusion is often, you know, many hundreds of dollars because of the personnel costs involved and the overhead of running a clinic. Um, you know, as as unpopular as this may be, because there are some there are some factions within the psychedelic space that really believe that this should never be. Um, made into a pharmaceutical medicine this should never be paid for and you know and as 
as much as I admire the ideals that these people bring to it, I I feel like it's it. First of all, it's not real, very realistic, and second of all, it's it's also in it doesn't square with equity because you know unless these people that are kind of assailing the cost of this are willing to work for free, which most of us you know frankly can't afford to do. Um, they're, they're going to need to be compensated for their time, and honestly, one of the one of the great things that we could do for improving equity in this space is to have treatments that are FDA approved, so that they can be covered under Medicare, so that our least privileged Medicare and Medicaid, so which are safety net insurance co- plans in this country, they're you know federally. Um, paid for health plans so that those folks can have access to it as well. Because if we just, if the only people that can have access to this are people that can fork out a thousand dollars a journey. And I honestly, I think that'll be on the lower end of cost, um, you know, to do that in Oregon. Well, that's great for those people who can afford to do that, but there's a lot of people who don't have those kind of resources, but they might have Medicare and, if we really are serious about addressing some of these equity issues, we really need to think about how people are going to pay for this. And one of the ways we've traditionally done that is by having this as a FDA-approved medication that is available under Medicare insurance. And, you know, that that's going to be really important for, for making this available. Yeah, 100%. Um, I agree. Uh, so um, what... Practical tips. Uh, you do a lot of education at, at, as a part of Site Congress. What practical tips can you offer to mental health professionals who want to incorporate psychedelic assisted therapy? I mean, in terms of like are there programs or things that you read, um, training courses, that type of thing? Yeah. So, you know, there, there appears to kind of feels like mushrooms after the rain. You know, every time I turn around, there are more training programs that are offering certification in psychedelic therapies. And I think they're all, you know, a noble effort um, in trying to address sort of the provider gap, which is likely to occur. Um, they, They have challenges in that those curriculums are not standardized at this point. So really, it's up to the person who's creating the program to put whatever they want on the curriculum, which, you know, as we know from other more traditional training paths is not the case. Like, you know, if you go to nursing school in this country, if you've gone to an accredited program, um, there's going to be standard elements in that curriculum that all those schools will have as, you know, they have to have as part of their accreditation. No such thing exists in the psychedelic space yet. Um, there isn't even really uh, agreement necessarily as to what um, what constitutes a psychedelic assisted therapist, right? So these are these are challenges. And then we also have to look at how long it takes for people to be to move into these into these roles. So you know, to train a therapist in the U.S., you know, post college is anywhere between sort of three to seven or eight years. That's a long period of time. And so, you know, one of the things that I've been advocating for as a nurse and looking at the role of nursing in this is that, you know, we have four million nurses in the United States, many of whom would probably like to quit their jobs because if you look at the reports of burnout and and such. Um, a lot of people want to get out of their job they're in, but and some of them talk about leaving nursing, but I think they really would 
like to stay in a role where they're taking care of patients. They don't necessarily want to work in a hospital. Um, and I see a real opportunity there in those. If you were to take even just one percent of those four million nurses, that's forty thousand potential clinicians who are already licensed, who are already knowledgeable in things like patient care and pharmacology and managing emergencies if they should arise. And you give them some additional training, you know, just like, I mean, I haven't been a hospital nurse for 18 years. And so if I was going to go back and work in a hospital, I would need some retraining, but I could pick it up pretty quickly, I think. And so I think for nurses who are really interested in in pursuing this work, there's a really, uh, this could be a real win-win because we keep those we keep those clinicians uh, enrolled as nurses. We don't lose them to other professions. And we begin to really populate the psychedelic assisted therapy therapist ranks with clinicians who are skilled at dealing with patients in sort of many different states of consciousness, know how to administer medications. Um, and really, as part of their their natural intelligence, native intelligence rather, really know how to sit and be present with patients in a way that that delivers care um, and allows for this sort of natural unfolding of these states that happen in psychedelic therapy to occur without excessive intervention and without um, rushing in to have to do something. You know, we often say in these trainings, uh, don't just do something, sit there, you know, and watch it unfold. Because often what happens is I've seen in, in our subjects in our study is that, you know, they may be having a very intense emotional experience one minute, and then a minute later it's shifted into something else. And we didn't have to do anything to make that happen. We just had to be present and allow that unfolding process to happen. And it's difficult for those of us who've been trained to intervene. You know, we think, oh my gosh, I got to do something, right? Maybe we don't. You know, maybe the person has some innate wisdom about what they need to do and the medicine helps them to access that. And our job is to facilitate that access, but not to show them where to go, that they'll figure that out if they're given the space to do that in. And I think I think nurses would be particularly skilled at doing that. That sounds like an incredible solution that should be adopted. It's it's one it's one of it's one solution. We're gonna need a lot of solutions to figure yeah. out how to, how well, to actually yeah. operationalize this. Scale. Yeah. I because I'm a big fan of group dosing and so um, I think that there's a role for that as well. Yeah, you were an early adopter. Yeah, I was an early adopter. I remember when I came to visit you at at at, at Kaiser, you know, one morning, and you had what a dozen people seven thirty a.m. a few minutes of each other, and <laughs> yeah, and they got you know themselves checked in, and they had their oral. You know, these were people on what maintenance they'd already responded to. No, we were infusion. starting new because we didn't have enough room in the IV program. Yeah, oh, right, and, and yeah, and and and. And, you know, you. this is the other thing, too, is that, you know, that disconnection model, we're, we're disconnected from yes, other people. Yes, yes. And, you know, we think about healing in these little siloed slots. And, you know, maybe we need to not be so vertical, but more horizontal and start connecting with other people and the world around us. And, and maybe that's part of the antidepressant effects is 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 being able to branch out and connect with other people and that perhaps you know there's an opportunity there to connect with other people who are going through a similar experience i mean that's what um you know brian anderson found with his um 
group um, psilocybin study of, of uh, men who were experiencing demoralization from um, long-term HIV diagnoses was that those guys connected with each other in ways that were personally meaningful to them. And it was a big part of what helped them feel better. Absolutely. I just cheers to Brian <laughs> um, for that study. So, yeah. So what do you think? Do you have um, some other, any other thoughts for us? Things that we didn't touch on? I think we've covered a lot. Um, I understand the impatience that people have with sort of getting this out into the world, you know, and I see, I see a lot of interest in sort of bypassing the whole medical model, you know, and, and, and I don't think these, I don't think these models need to be in opposition with each other. I mean, regulators might, regulatory bodies may disagree with me, but, you know, I, I think that we can have a world in which, yeah, you can go to Oregon and have a personal exploration psilocybin experience with somebody who's skilled at holding that space, and you don't need to have a psychiatric diagnosis to qualify for that. And we also need to have a place where, you know, somebody's grandmother who's never had, you know, anything stronger than, you know, a, a, a 2% beer, um, to experience a non-ordinary state of consciousness to help her depression that maybe is delivered in a more medicalized setting that she feels like she can trust and be able to release and let go and go into do the work, you know? And so I don't think these things need to be in opposition with each other. And I feel like there's a lot of sort of narrative that tries to do that. And I, I, to which I, you know, I challenge the psychedelic community, you know, like, look, y'all know how to, you know, y'all know how to operate with paradox and, and seeming contradictions. Like that's one of the first teachings of psychedelics is like the world is not an either or it's a both and. So our challenge I think is going to be to walk that talk. You know, how do we do that? How do we hold a both and model rather than an either or? Because, you know, having everything be in opposition to each other and either or has really, I don't know if it's served us so well as a, as a society, as a culture, as a species, you know, on this planet. And so, you know, if there really is this psychedelic renaissance that's happening, you know, I, I look forward to the psychedelic enlightenment personally, you know, the renaissance has been great. Sometimes it feels like a little bit of a psychedelic adolescence. I'm kind of looking forward to moving on to the next stage. You know, it, I mean, it just feels like, you know, I mean, when you're an adolescent, you have very strong opinions about everything, right? And you're sort of offended at the powers that be because they, you quickly see that their words don't always align with their actions and you call everyone a hypocrite. But the, you know, at somewhere around your mid twenties, you start you stop using the word hypocrite so much because you realize you've kind of become one, you know, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you, re you realize the world is a lot more complicated than you thought it was. And that's okay. That's normal development. And I kind of feel like that's what we're struggling with in the psychedelic space right now is we're having kind of a psychedelic adolescence and we want there to be good guys and bad guys and, you know, these sort of grand battles between them. And I think the reality is probably more nuanced than that. And and I imagine it's probably more complicated than we can actually even imagine at this point in time. And I really look forward to seeing what it looks like, you know, 10 years from now, because I think it's going to be quite different than it is right now. 
Fabulous. Um, can you give me again your quote about you know, psychedelics or life jackets against despair, or what was that exactly? Oh, it, not not psychedelics, but you know, the place, part of what a placebo effect is is that it is it is the biologic signature of hope. You know, so it, when you distill what goes into a into a placebo effect. There's many different components to it, but at the end of the day, they all kind of come down to an experience of hope and a belief that things actually can get better. And I think we ignore that part of our treatment really to our own detriment, because I think that really has a powerful ability to help people and we don't want to overstate it you know we 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 want to be we want to be moderate in what we promise we don't want to we don't want to find ourselves like we historically have been over and over again in psychiatry where we overpromise and we underdeliver i mean that has happened so many times in the history of our profession i don't want that to happen here i'd like us to find a way that we can do this right um, and find the people for whom it really works and help them with it and figure out for whom it doesn't work. I think that's equally valuable. And nobody talks about that. You know, we want we want this to be a panacea. And that's a fool's errand. You know, nothing is a panacea. And so part of what we need to figure out is for whom does this not work? I mean, think about like Think about in like cancer treatment, you know, we now have biomarkers on tumors that tell us this whole class of meds won't work on this tumor. Don't bother because you're just wasting your time and that tumor is just going to grow while you're futzing around with this med that doesn't work. You know, we don't have the equivalent thing in psychiatry. We don't have a predictive biomarker for most conditions. And so we need to figure out who psychedelics work for, but equally we need to figure out who they don't work for so we don't waste their time and energy pursuing a treatment that isn't is going to be ineffective. Right. And make them feel that, you know, they've failed something else. Yeah. Medicine didn't serve them more. Oh, it's the worst thing we say when we say yeah. somebody failed a treatment. You exactly. know, no, the treatment failed them. Right. Good. We're on the same side there. Okay. Well, Andrew, thank you so incredibly much for spending uh, time with us today. Uh, that was really illuminating. And I look forward to more chats. That's it for today's episode of the Psychiatry Tomorrow podcast. We hope you found our discussion informative and inspiring. If you enjoyed the show, why not share it with one mental health clinician in your network? Your support means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. It only takes a moment and your feedback helps us to improve the show and reach even more listeners who are passionate about mental health. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the future.